to Uncommon Decency. This is a podcast that will seek to explore the intellectual landscape of Europe. My name is Jorge Gonzalez Galarza. I'm a freelancer, born and raised in Spain. Bonjour, everyone. I'm Francois. I'm French, but London born. Like Jorge, a master's student here in Paris. So, if a wannabe Englishman from France and if a wannabe Frenchman from Spain met in Washington, D.C., of all places. <laughs> And we came up with the idea of offering a venue for smart thinking on European issues with some of the continent's brightest minds. And so we're happy to have you join us in that intellectual Eurotrip. Yes, we are. And um, we're also very grateful for the support of Young Voices and Stephen Kent uh, for his support and, and his expert advice. Uh, now let's bring on the interview with our inaugural guest whose own career epitomizes the transatlantic conversation really that we're trying to create here with this podcast. Let's get to it. Ben is a former research fellow at the Hudson Institute and is now the head of a future Europe initiative at the Atlantic Council in Washington, D.C. He published in 2019 Paradise Lost, Trump's America and the End of European Illusions. Ben is a regular contributor in American and French media on transatlantic issues. He was a foreign policy advisor to presidential candidate Emmanuel Macron in 2017. Ben also supports the ever-disappointing Bordeaux soccer team, but nobody's perfect. Happy to have you with us, Ben. Thanks for having me. So, Ben, you wrote last year, Paradise Lost. The thesis is that for quite a while, the EU and its member states have acted as if the end of history had already happened. And essentially, they would be happy to subcontract the management of the last few tragic aspects of geopolitics, mainly war, to the US, while they were ahead of everyone else in building the geopolitics of the future based on trade and liberal values. When Trump comes, that vision is shattered, and the Atlantic alliance seriously shaken. So the temptation in European capitals is to wait Trump out. But you argue that Trump is not an anomaly, that the current retrenchment was started under Obama and will continue after Trump, and that the EU should use this opportunity to start being a geopolitical player and not a geopolitical playing field. My question, Ben, is how did this post-political vision of the world become so powerful within the EU and its member states? And are we finally over this post-political phase? So, you know, I think this vision of a post-political world where economics, a win-win approach to trade, uh, international relations based on uh, the rule of law were so successful in the European Union because first, because they were successful for Europeans. And, and it's important, you know, to remember that um, this book was written by a pro-European, someone who does believe in, in the power of the EU. Um, and so I, I'm certainly not advocating to, uh, to get rid of it in any sort of form, but to understand that the rest of the world does not function like us and that what we've managed to build on the European continent, where after decades of war, we managed to replace it with technocratic cooperation, while the rest of the world looks much more like Trump than it does uh, European mm -hmm. Union. And at the end of the Cold War in the 90s and the 2000s, uh, we operate or under the paradigm that uh, if you, you know, remember, obviously, the end of history, the Fukuyama idea, we would come to a sort of post-ideological age where uh, trade and cooperation uh, would progressively lead to a form of political and ideological convergence that, uh, you know, the best example was China, that China was opening up economically, uh, was accepting free trade, would enter the uh, WTO, which would necessarily lead to A, a form of political democratization of China, and B, 
a moderation of its foreign policy attitude. And what we've seen in the last few years is exactly the opposite. Rising authoritarianism in China and a more assertive claim to world leadership, especially in its neighborhood, but even in the rest of the world. China is also a good example in this respect because the way it views economics is completely antithetical to the European Union because the Belt and Road Initiative, which is a uh, an initiative of economic investment in in Central uh, Asia and Africa, but also in parts of Europe, is seen not only as you know profit-based economic investment, but as a, as a tool for political influence. And so I think what we're seeing right now is a repoliticization of international relations, where ideology and expression of interest and security trump just a purely uh, legal or, or economic uh, reasoning. And so this is why Europeans have to understand uh, how this world functions, have to assert themselves as a, as a geopolitical power, first and foremost in their neighborhood, because first because they, have, they should do it in general, but I think they're prompted to do it by the shift in, uh, in the United States that I consider to be much more structural than really linked to, to Trump himself. You know, I've been in the United States in 2014, and um, it's uh, it's very tempting. Obviously, you know, Trump uh, declared his candidacy six months after I think after I arrived in the U.S. and uh, mm. and obviously he he is an unprecedented figure, not only in American politics but I want to say in world politics. You know, his past as a businessman, as a reality show figure, the way he speaks, the way he uses Twitter, uh, the scandals, the porn stars, whatever you want to say. You know, it clearly, but but. If you take a step back from this, and this is what I try to do in my book, I'm not interested really so much in the personality or the tweets. Uh, if you take a step back, I think you see that he is much more uh, an accelerator, not an accident in history, an accelerator of pre-existing trends and pre-existing questioning of America's role in the world uh, that I would say at the end of the day are really linked to the end of the Cold War and the end of uh, existential structural adversary uh, with the Soviet Union but they were really exacerbated by the dual crisis of the 2000s, uh, the, the failure of the war in Iraq, and uh, the financial and economic crisis that left deep marks on American society, uh, that mm. really questioned the value of the American dream, the value of American leadership on, on the world stage. And basically, you know, I don't like the term isolationism. Uh, America has a foreign policy. It has a foreign policy under Trump. Uh, it has... You know, it does trade, it, it has military alliances, um, but I think it's more a country that's becoming more and more normal and that is progressively leaving behind a lot of its exceptionalism or its universalism uh, to just conduct a sort of normal uh, foreign policy with, I think, deep consequences for the world and first and foremost uh, for the Europeans. Sure. The, the argument in your book, I think, is really uh, it's really timely and, and people really understand it. They get it. Uh, you know, Europe has to be able to um, be a strategic force and be strategically autonomous from U.S. patronage. My question is, there are all, all these uh, trends that are that have been building up for some time and that have gradually started, you know, kind of weeding the United States out of the liberal international order. There were pressures and and, 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 you know, interest within the United States for a more restrained Jacksonian sort of foreign policy. And now that's kind of what the EU's had to deal with. 
uh, with a partner that it, that it can just no longer rely on as much as it, it did in, in the Obama years. But my question is, in the, in the time that has lapsed since you published your book, Paradise Lost, which I believe is now over a year old, but in, in the time that has lapsed, Ben, how do you think that the thesis of your book is held up to, to the test of time? Do you think that, you know, I, I, we were uh, chatting just in the virtual kind of green room, so to speak, just before we went live, uh, you were telling us about the conference that you, um, you guys at the Atlantic Council held just uh, yesterday. Uh, the headline, the title, um, I, I thought was really compelling. Right? Should Europe go its own way? How do you think that, for, for instance, you work in Washington, you're you're a think tank insider. How do you think? Do you think it's easier now in Washington to say, "Hey, listen, maybe we, you, the you, uh, the U.S. shouldn't be so forwardly deployed in Europe, so to speak." Maybe you know. Uh, burdening, uh, shouldering so much of the burden uh, for our NATO allies isn't such a good idea. Do you think it's become easier to make that sort of case? So, uh, you know, there's a joke in the think tank world that uh, uh, we all say COVID has changed the world, and then we all say it confirmed our pre-existing thesis. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and so that's exactly what I'm going to say to you. Uh, but, but look, um, you know, the, the thing is, uh, if you look at the election that's ahead, obviously, in a couple months, uh, you have uh, Biden, who is clearly making a case for a more assertive American leadership. Uh, he has put restoring alliances at the center of his uh, vision. Uh, he's talking about organizing a summit of democracies at the beginning of his term. And uh, what's clear is the strategic rivalry with China will stay central, uh, whoever the president is. And I think Biden will try to look for a more multilateral approach to this. Now, mm -hmm. with that being said, if you look once again to the structural factors, if potential President Biden will come into office in the midst of an unprecedented economic crisis in the United States, mm -hmm. of an unprecedented health crisis, and we're not out of COVID yet, uh, and as the country is also reckoning with issues of race and identity um, in, a, in a very tense way. Uh, and so it's obvious that a lot of the priorities will have to be domestic, will have to be about healthcare, infrastructure, inequalities, uh, debt, student debt, uh, the themes that were uh, put forward by the progressive left, uh, embodied by people like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, have had deep influence on the platform, even though they didn't win the, uh, uh, the primary. Uh, if you look at, uh, once again, longer trends, uh, you're talking about forward deployment of U.S. in Europe. A few months ago, President Trump announced mm. a uh, sort of unilateral withdrawal of 10,000 troops from Germany, uh, bringing them from about 35,000 to 25,000. And there was an uproar in, in Washington, in many circles, and I think some of it was warranted because the way it was done in uncoordinated, unilateral way, kind of petty because you know that he's probably doing it because he just dislikes Chancellor Merkel. <laughs> but at the end of the day, in the last 15 years, the number of troops, American troops in, in Germany has gone from 80,000 to 35,000. Mm. This has been the Bush, Obama, and Trump administrations. And so mm. I know there's, it's tempting to make this about Trump uh, because the style also is much more confrontational and hostile to Europeans. But the progressive withdrawal, the progressive focus on other areas from domestic politics in the United States to uh, China and the Asia Pacific more generally, is a trend that will outlast this president. Mm. You know, tomorrow, 
if you look especially at direct European security interest, look at what's going on in the East Med right now between France, Greece, and Turkey. Uh, look at the uh, consequences still that the refugee crisis in, in coming out of the Syrian conflict, we're not done with this, uh, could have. Look at uh, the consequence of uh, Libya as, as a failed state. Uh, is the United States going to be more involved under another administration? Is the United States going to come to the rescue of uh, European interest? Here's where I'm, I'm very skeptical. And so my concern, and this is why I wrote the book, is that if we have a friendlier administration that comes in, uh, clearly there's going to be areas on which we'll have a much more improved cooperation. And the first one will be climate change. And it's clear that if you have a Biden administration, not only will they reintegrate the Paris Agreement, but I think they will probably even be more forward-looking and ambitious on this. And that's positive. And same thing, we won't have the trade wars. We won't have a president calling the European Union a foe. And that's also very positive. But I, I worry that beyond a friendlier rhetoric on liberal democracies working together in alliances, we're headed towards deep misunderstanding and, and disappointment. And so this is mm. why I think... Uh, Europeans should not believe that they're out of the weeds uh, with, with a Biden or, or, or whoever administration. And to be fair to Europeans, uh, we are seeing some language, some initiatives on certain fields. You know, Ursula von der Leyen yesterday talked a lot about digital sovereign, uh, sovereignty, and that's we can talk more in details about this, but that's been one of the big uh, areas in which the EU has been moving forward and, and pushing forward its its own model. It's uh, sort of model of normative power on question of content removal or privacy or taxation, antitrust. Um, but I think when it comes to defense and security, it's still fairly underwhelming, unfortunately. Uh, you see Europeans talking about strategic mm. autonomy or trying to talk about the language of power, but the truth is in the budget negotiation, the uh, budget for PESCO in European Defense Fund, which is already fairly low, has been cut in two, uh, which was sort of uh, mm. obscured by the the good news uh, on the massive recovery package that was adopted, but it still means that uh, there's a lot of efforts to be mm. made in that direction. Well, because the premise in your book is, in fact, that Trump is an anomaly. And right now you've got a, a test of your thesis, which is you know, what happens if we go to Biden, who is, you know, as you said, a staunch Atlanticist, uh, much friendly as well. Um, um, he, he's a lot closer to the Europeans on the climate accords, on the Iran nuclear deal on you know, international organizations. You argue that the interests between the United States and, and Europe have been divergent for a little time. But don't you think that Trump was just the ideal villain for the creation, for the impetus, for the momentum towards the construction of a more geopolitically powerful EU? But the moment you get rid of Trump, that kind of impetus and momentum, do you think it could just evaporate? You know, it's a really interesting question. And, uh, and I think uh, the proof is going to be in the pudding because what I would like to see, uh, I, I don't think Trump is the ideal villain because first, he's such a caricature in certain aspects that he has, on the contrary, pushed Europeans, some Europeans to wait him out and really treat him as an anomaly. And he has also pushed other mm. Europeans to... Uh, adopt a policy of damage control and try to uh, put an emphasis on bilateral ties with the United States uh, to save the alliance rather than investing in the European Union. What I would like to see is not the exact opposite of this, because I think there's a temptation to do the exact opposite and massage Europeans and say, you're great, we're sorry, we're back, 
everything's going back to normal. And I think that would be the wrong message to send. And, and we're headed towards a disappointment if we do this. But a, a sort of message of tough love where Americans can tell Europeans, mm. all right, we're your allies. We want to uh, exert leadership, but we can't do everything. And there mm. are areas that are not our priority anymore. And you guys need to step up. And maybe we can put in a process where progressively you replace us. Let me give you an example. I wrote a piece last year when um, Trump announced the uh, withdrawal from U.S. troops, special forces, uh, 1,500 special forces from Northeast Syria and let mm. the Turks uh, get in. Uh, there was major international outcry uh, because of the abandonment of Kurds, because of the security consequences it could have on the reemergence of terror groups and maybe migration crisis on uh, in Europe. But I thought it was a little too easy to only blame Trump because we were in uh, 2019 when that happened. Um, Trump had been in power for three years, and I, you know, when when I still read that he's unpredictable and that he did this in an unannounced and unilateral way, he had been announced it for three years. Mm-hmm. So Dane's saying my priority in Syria is to destroy ISIS, and once we're done, I'm out of there. <laughs> really showed that he had no interest in any in playing any role in the political rearrangement of Syria post Assad or, mm. or not post Assad, but like they say post civil war. Um, and with, which I regret, I, I would have liked the United States to be more involved. I would like the United States to be more involved under Obama. But he was explicit about this. Mm. 1,500 troops. Is there no way that Europeans could have worked with the Trump administration and say, all right, the 1,500 troops, give us a couple of years. We're going to send 200 French, uh, 150 Germans, uh, 100 Italians, and progressively replace the U.S. presence. And I kind of think that if we had managed to do this, progressively, uh, it would have given incentive for the United States to stay and see that Europeans were carrying the burden. Mm. So um, I think there's a responsibility on the European side on this as well, Mm. because a lot of the strategy has been to mitigate, to circumvent, to surround the, the president, to contain his decision through working with the Pentagon and the bureaucracy in, in Washington, rather than taking him to his word and trying to find ways in which Europeans could supplant and step up and, and defend their, their own interests. And so I, I, I wish uh, we, could, we could find a way to have, a, I think, a much more robust conversation on what we expect Europeans to do to be mm. able to defend their own interest in, uh, in, in security. So quick question on what a Biden presidency would look like for transatlantic relations. You already talked a little bit about uh, the climate agreement, but what do you think are some of the sticking points who are here to stay? Um, you touched a little bit in your book and I'd like you to delve into it a bit deeper because what you're saying is the structural, structural difficulties between the EU and the US are here to stay regardless on the president. Yeah. So, I mean, look, first, right now, the biggest uh, challenge for U.S. foreign policy is the question of China. And this has been uh, only accelerated by the pandemic. Uh, mm. There's bipartisan consensus on this, but there's going to be a deep difference in method, I think, in the way the Trump presidency and the potential Biden presidency would approach this. Uh, Trump has, to his credit, put China at the forefront of U.S. foreign policy. Uh, it has mm-hmm. even sort of imposed it on the conversation in, in, in Europe, but I think has chosen a very bilateral path in the way of dealing with Beijing, focusing more on uh, 
trade agreements and sort of rebalancing trade deficits. You know, he has this sort of very uh, uh, zero-sum game approach to international trade, where if you have a deficit, you're a loser. If you have a, a surplus, you're a winner, which not a single economist agrees with, <laughs> very mercantilist approach to this. So his obsession has been to sort of rebalance uh, the uh, um, uh, the trade deficit with, with China. I think there's been a huge missed opportunity in this administration to work with Europeans. There was an EU-China summit last week uh, and uh, this week. And if you, uh, if you look at the language coming out of European authorities, it's so close to the concerns that come out of the United States. First, you have obviously concerns over human rights, uh, the repression of Uyghurs, and the question of Hong Kong. Uh, you have the same concerns over uh, technology theft, uh, privacy, uh, so the, the, the general uh, concerns over uh, over trade, uh, 5G, uh, digital issues. So there's so much that uh, the United States could do to build a common front with Europe. And especially as you consider that it is not only a, and not primarily a military issue, the question of freedom of navigation in South China Sea. It is about what kind of globalization do we want? What are the rules on uh, technology, on trade, on uh, digital privacy? then it's clear that having the European Union, not only member states, but actually Brussels on your side is a major asset for uh, US diplomacy. So I, I expect the Biden administration to put the same emphasis on the rivalry with China, but have probably a, a more transatlantic approach in, in dealing with this and maybe also reigniting some forms of trade deal, you know, a form of TPP, maybe not called this way in, in the Pacific and, and trying to find a way to move forward with, uh, uh, with Europeans. Uh, but that also means that Europeans will be under probably more pressure than they were under the Trump administration to pick a side and uh, side with the United States on you know, questions like 5G, for example. So there's the downside to the transatlantic cooperation is that Europeans will be expected to fall in line. That's, that's the first aspect. The second aspect that I think is a continuity is um, what I mentioned earlier, which is that there's going to be a major focus on, on U.S. domestic politics. So mm -hmm. a limited attention span for some of the security concerns of Europeans on the, on, on the neighborhood. And so there's a moment, you know, at the end of the day, it's not only about do we have an amenable U.S. president or not. You, you can't base your foreign policy. You, you should have allies. You can't mm -hmm. base your foreign policy on the assumption that uh, you know, the United States will be there or not to protect you. You can flip a coin and just hope that the president is going to be nice. Maybe we will have a, a, a Biden presidency that will be incredibly transatlantic, incredibly internationalist, and incredibly supportive of uh, European security interests. This is what I wish, but uh, it's not a responsible way to base the security of your own citizens to hope that a foreign power will always be there. You also have to, uh, to step up and, and at least have contingency plans. And so this, by the way, the whole reasoning behind strategic autonomy, uh, this theme that's been pushed forward by, by Macron, but also by some European authorities, it is not about decoupling from the U.S. alliance. It's not about pushing the United States out of Europe. That doesn't make any sense. It is about being able, if necessary, to be able to defend our own security interest. The French and now European intervention in the Sahel against Al-Qaeda is a good example. It's... Mm in the interest of the alliance. It's supported by the United States with uh, um, reconnaissance and, and surveillance, et cetera. But it's led by Europeans because it's in the interest of the Europeans. It's not against the US. So it's not so much diverging interests as more differences 
of, of, uh, uh, of priorities. Now, on, um, on other things that I think are uh, structural continuities between the Trump and the Biden administration, uh, one that's really interesting and that I, I detail a little bit in my book is the question of, uh, I would call it geoeconomics. And that's something that you hear a lot. Uh, if I, I really encourage you to listen to interviews of uh, Jake Sullivan, who's really an uh, mm -hmm. interesting person who was uh, uh, a very close foreign policy advisor to Hillary Clinton and, and now to the Biden campaign um, on the, the integration of, uh, of economics and foreign policy. Uh, that means two things. Uh, there's a progressive element in this uh, that Sullivan puts forth a lot, basically saying, well, if, uh, if we want to compete with China in the long run, our, our greatest competitive edge will be innovation, research, foreign students. Uh, and so we need to invest more in, in the R&D and innovation in the United States proper. Uh, and there's sort of a you know Cold War 60s element to it when you think about it, like the, 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 the race to the moon, et cetera. Um, but there's also the idea that there's a deeper integration of uh, traditional national security uh, instruments and uh, economic ones. That's what we call economic statecraft more and more in Washington. Mm. Uh, the Treasury Department, the Ministry of Economics, basically, Treasury Department in the United States has really become also a foreign policy arm in mm. Mm -hmm. Part of the foreign policy establishment, you've seen the increasing reliance on sanctions in the U.S. and the, the increasing sophistication of them, the, the more targeted sanction, the use of extraterritorial sanction uh, that we've seen uh, against Iran from, from this administration and previous ones. Um, and I think that's something that you'll see more and more. There's, a, um, there's an increasing, there's a theme that's really popular right now among uh, foreign policy circles left and right in Washington is the theme of uh, kleptocracy. And mm. Also, that uh, if you want to uh, sanction or push or punish bad international actors, you have to go after the money. And sometimes mm -hmm. the money is laundered in our own capitals, laundered in the city of London, it's laundered in uh, Florida real estate, in European capitals, in Paris too. And so you have to seize assets, you have to go after um, uh, international mo uh, money laundering uh, networks. Uh, and, and I think the United States is going to develop more and more sophisticated arsenal to go after that. So that's, that's a, a trend that you already see under this administration that you'll see more and more in, in the next one. And that's only reinforced by the fact that, you know, people talk about U.S. isolationism, but the dollar has never been so dominant on the international stage, international mm. markets. That it's mm. uh, that's a phenomenon that's been reinforced by the 2008 financial crisis and the liquidity swaps that has been have been prompted by the Fed. The Fed has taken also in this crisis a very proactive role, including on uh, the international stage. So here again, when people say the U.S. is not leading on the international stage against COVID, well, it depends who you're talking about. If mm. you're talking about the White House, for sure, it's been bunker, hunkered down and, and uh, very inward looking. If you're talking about the Fed, the Fed is leading the charge on the on international mm. markets. And so if you look at the, the weight of the dollar in international reserves around the world, it's steadily increased in the last 12 years. Um, and uh, a really good book on this is uh, uh, Adam Tu's uh, economic historian yeah. uh, wrote, a, I think, the definitive history of the financial crisis called Crash. He's also written the, yep, very good. a high number of, uh, he's been very productive during the COVID crisis, written really interesting things, especially on the role of central banks. And so that's, the dollar is also, 
a foreign policy uh, instrument of the United States in this respect. Um, and, and that's something, by the way, as an aside, that I find often missing from the conversation in the European Union where we're talking about um, um, Eurozone reform. It's, you know, obviously a, a theme that's dear to uh, Macron, the, so the idea that uh, the Eurozone is uh, un- incomplete, mm. uh, that we need to continue pushing for uh, its, its integration and, and have more redistribution schemes to be able to make it a, what, what economists call an optimal uh, currency area. Uh, the foreign policy, national security, or sovereignty element is missing from the conversation. We're making it exclusively an economic conversation, which, by the way, should be enough. But uh, the truth is also having a robust euro on the international stage would be a way to shield Europeans from extraterritorial sanctions and give them more leverage to conduct their own foreign policy. Mm-hmm. There's a question, Ben, I, I want to ask. Your French, Emmanuel Macron is French. Most of the leading voices who call for a geopolitical EU are French. Um, some of them are obviously German, the rest of it, but most of them are French. Is there a feeling that this project to make the EU a geopolitical player, kind of a French project with a few allies, with some very reluctant other EU partners? Is there an idea, you know, we're very ambitious about it because we, we have this grand vision of what Europe could be, but maybe some countries are very happy with, you know, having the, having the Americans being the ultimate protector or um, relying on American influence while they can, and they don't want this grand vision for the EU. They're fine with what they have now and with American protection. Well, you know, so I, uh, I'm really lucky that obviously I work with Americans and then I travel. I used to travel uh, before COVID mm. uh, a lot you did. All, all across Europe, uh, from, from Central Europe to, you know, Southeast Europe. Or Stock- the Atlantic Council has an office in Stockholm. We have a strong presence in Poland. We have a strategic partnership with Globsec and in Slovakia with the Munich Security Conference. We uh, work deeply with, with Greece. Um, and what you just said, I've heard so many times. And so there's a moment you have to listen. And people say, uh, you know, this, this vision of European sovereignty, strategic autonomy, or geopolitical Europe uh, is, uh, is a French project to project French interests. And um, if we want to build Europe, we have to do it with the vision of our partners, we have to do it, uh, including the interest of the 27, the visions of the 27. Uh, it is, it's slow, it's cumbersome, but it also means that we're stronger once we are able to move uh, forward. Um, and, and we have to respect that. And I think, unfortunately, for a long time in France, we have not listened enough. And we have not been respectful enough of the foreign policy visions of our partners. I think, um, you know, we... We can't work under the assumption that we're the only ones who have a vision for Europe or we're the only ones who really think about European interest and the other ones are, are selfish or have left history. Um, and, and so in, in my book, especially, I, I plead for a, a, a deeper French engagement, especially with some regions that have been totally blind spots of a, a French foreign policy. I think Central Europe has been one. I think Southeast Europe uh, has, has been another one. Um, and... Um, and, and it can't be only either French or the Franco-German engine for that matter. Uh, you know, I think what happened this summer uh, with the recovery package shows that the Franco-German partnership is still alive and well. And I think some of the skeptics, myself included, have been proven wrong on, on, on this. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean that we can't invest in other kinds of, uh, of partnerships. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that also means that, you know, I, I think for a long time, 
maybe some there's there's some bad faith in the conversation to be honest because you know i see myself explaining european sovereignty and strategic autonomy over and over and over again sometimes to people who are i think on purpose pretending not to get it you know when i hear well it's the french want to push america out of europe or pleading for decoupling mm. that's absurd i mean uh, General Mattis, when he was defense secretary, he called France the U.S. partner of choice. The Franco-American mm. relationship on military issues is very deep and successful. Uh, mm. It's comprehensive uh, in, in the Sahel and counterterrorism in, in the Middle East. So the idea that the French are, are anti-American in, the, in their military uh, outlook is, is, is preposterous. Um, mm. France is actually the U.S. now one of the closest, if not the closest, uh, uh, military partner. Uh, but what's true, though, is that you know, an issue like, for example, the very legitimate fear that our Central and Eastern European uh, allies have of Russia, sometimes mm. we lack empathy. And, and we, we, you know, you, you need to build Europe with the histories, the geographies, the cultures of your partners. And mm. uh, I don't think we've been uh, understanding enough of, of where they come from. Mm. Uh, I, I think we've made progress in the last few years. The fact that you have French troops in Estonia uh, within the, the NATO forward presence uh, there, I think is positive. And by the way, you have Estonian troops in, in Mali. And I think that's a great example of a successful uh, security partnership between two countries in the European Union. Um, I think that if we talk about European solidarity and sovereignty, then we need to step up to help uh, Italy and Greece when they're under pressure from migration. Because, you know, the, the Schengen area, I think, is one of the greatest success of, mm. of the European Union, and we should never be blasé about it. But if you uh, uh, raise your internal borders, then you have to protect your external borders, and you have to support and give resources and manpower to the countries on your external border. Because then afterwards, your message about European solidarity uh, uh, feels very empty. And so I think we could have done more to, uh, to help them. I, uh, we can go into more details on this, by the way, but I'm really uh, heartened uh, and very supportive of uh, the deepening relationship I'm seeing between France and Greece right now. I think that mm -hmm. uh, relationship has been sort of a missed opportunity, both on economic and migration issues, and seeing um, uh, France step up to support uh, Greek sovereignty that's being threatened by, uh, by Turkey and the East Med and, and, and Cyprus also, for that matter. I think is a very positive step in the right direction. Um, and I think Clément Beaune actually is in uh, Athens today uh, as we speak. Uh, so th there's, th there's an effort that's going in the right direction, but there's been decades of misopportunity, opportunity, uh, miscommunication, and let's be honest, a lot of arrogance on our part uh, that we need, to, uh, uh, we need to fix and we need to, to work on. That, yeah. that would be enough. Sometimes they're just... Um, diverging interests. Sometimes, you know, some, you can't always reconcile with better c communication. Sometimes you have real differences and we have to find ways to, uh, to work them out. Um, but, uh, but yeah, and to, uh, to your initial point on, uh, in your question, um, one, one thing that's really key is that uh, uh, the transatlantic alliance is, is central. I would say it's central to the French, let's be honest, to, to the way French security is set up today, but it's clearly central to the one of many of our partners. And, and, and so if we give off the impression that there's a choice to be made between being a strong European and being an Atlanticist, 
that that's not going to work out with uh, a lot of our partners and especially uh, Central and Eastern Europe. But I would say also Germany, also uh, 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 you know uh, Denmark and Sweden. Um, so we we have to um, to take that into consideration. And I think we've made progress in the last uh, ten years. Uh, the you know the Sarkozy France reintegrated the NATO. Uh, military command, and I think that's something that's been really positive for uh, for France. It's it's now around the table and part of the conversation. Uh, and and when before there was this, I think this um, suspicion that France was trying to prop up the EU as a counterweight to the United States, and mm-hmm. and that I think is a caricature of of, of division that I'm uh, promoting. Uh, that that can only alienate our, our European partners and thus go nowhere. Yeah, and, and just before uh, Francois jumps in for for follow up on on that uh, question in the uh, Eastern Mediterranean. I mean, th- this podcast is going to be released a few weeks from now. But I hope that folks will uh, re re um, you know put it back in context. And we're talking just in the wake of a very uh, tense right spat between. Um, uh, 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 Turkish and Greek uh, naval forces that um, uh, Franco was going to ask you about just just now, but um, I, I thought it was really interesting there, Ben, how you um, this this idea that you know there's always been a suspicion in other parts of Europe that France, uh, when, you know, when the, the theme that you know you're you're trying to build up and others are trying to build up about French sovereignty, it really reeks or it reminisces of of you know of, of kind of the 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 um, the, um, the decades old. French suspicion of American presence in Europe, which is which is really a, a, when you think of it historically, a, a really a, a a weird kind of tendency, right? Going back to, I mean, this De Gaulle spoke a lot about it, but when you put it in the wider context of France-U.S. relations, France was actually one of the earliest allies of the United States, but whether whether it was supporting the revol- revolutionary war against the Brits and that early kind of a love story, right, between uh, France and, and the U.S. So I thought that was uh, that was really, really interesting kind of how you put it. Uh, uh, Francois, I think you had a question about Greece. If, if, if I can just say yeah, a word about this. Um, Go ahead. You know, I, first, I, I just finished uh, Julian Jackson's biography oh, yeah. of goal called A Certain Night for mm. France. And uh, it's a remarkable book. It's very severe on De Gaulle's personality, and uh, we could go into more details. But it's so well written. It's so well documented. It's very entertaining to read because he's uh, quite a character. And uh, so for all the English speakers who want to learn more, because the, the interesting thing about the book is that it's a, it's a biography of De Gaulle with all the details that you need you know, in the biography. But it's also a remarkable book on um, French politics and society mm-hmm. and a book of ideas on, on France in the 20th century. Uh, and so I, you know, I often struggle when some American friends tell me, well, what's a good introduction to mm. understanding French politics? I think now I would recommend uh, that book. Yeah. And you know, what's interesting about it is that there was on the one hand with the goal, an obsession with French independence and sovereignty. Mm. Uh, and so the idea that even though we're part of the alliance, we, uh, uh, we need to have the ability to defend our own security uh, in, in last resort, because we know from history that sometimes your allies don't step up for you. For you, and so I think, especially for De Gaulle, uh, the centerpiece of this was was nuclear deterrence, obviously. Yeah. And the idea, and, and that was a, a key moment of crisis between the the Kennedy, but especially the Johnson administration and uh, and De Gaulle, where the United States was very reluctant to let other countries its allies. Have uh, have nuclear deterrent, and I think in retrospect, it's completely obvious that uh, De Gaulle was right that uh, having allies have their own 
nuclear deterrence would be a, a value added for the alliance. Right. Uh, but, you know, in key moments of crisis, it's really important to always remember that, for example, in the Cuban uh, Missile Crisis, the uh, U.S. Secretary of State goes to Paris, is about to show the goal, the pictures of uh, Soviet missiles being uh, delivered to Cuba, and the goal brushes them aside and says, you know, the word of the U.S. president is, is enough for, for me. There's a lot of theatrics mm-hmm. involved in this. But so th- there was never, uh, at least at first, uh, a, a necessary contradiction between having uh, French independence, but also having uh, having allies. The American lines. Yeah. Yeah. So just to go back a little bit on, on, on Greece and, and Turkey, um, could this be an occasion for the EU to build a solid geopolitical front? Or is there too many people in Europe who think that supporting Greece too directly could end up um, creating a risk of sleepwalking into a conflict with Turkey? I think the risk of sleepwalking into a conflict with Turkey is if we do nothing. And if we uh, continue to let this uh, encroaching and, and pressure on uh, the maritime sovereignty of uh, one of our allies go uh, unchallenged. And I think what happened this summer with uh, France sending uh, maritime reinforcement in the East Med to uh, support the Greeks was a really good step in the right uh, direction. This is for me, by the way, a case that should be so clear cut for Europeans because it combines the security interests of some of our partners, but also international law. So, you know, the EU is supposed to be the guarantor of international law and, and base its, most of its foreign policy on, uh, on this issue. And, and you have here uh, maritime conventions that uh, Europeans are a part of, but Turkey is not a part of. And mm. join them, and this could be decided at IDICG, which is uh, the International um, um, Justice Court, uh, which is what uh, Europeans are proposing, but that the Turks uh, uh, refuse. Now, that doesn't mean that, they, of course, we should find a compromise and there should be a dialogue. No one's talking about going to military conflict. Uh, mm. So this is not what this is about. And the fact that... Uh, you know, the French, on the one hand, are, uh, uh, um, I would say, rebalancing the balance of power uh, and that other actors like Germany are proposing to be mediators. I don't see this as necessarily contradictory. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and uh, Berlin has also issued statements of support to, the, uh, to Greece uh, and Cyprus. But I think you, you cannot embark, and this is what the Europeans need to learn more, you cannot embark on... A, uh, a serious negotiation if you don't have a balance of force. And I think what France did here is uh, to help uh, reestablish the, the balance of force. Yeah, it was, it was, very, it was very telling. It was, it was also very clear that France was really the only European country that was willing and able to step up um, uh, in this conflict and really show Turkey uh, that, that level of, of actual force. Um, and then, and by I, the way, on, on, on sleepwalking, you know, I think it's also time for uh, Europeans to have a serious conversation about the relationship we want to have with Turkey. This mm. is, mm. is obviously very different from the one that initially applied to EU membership. Mm. Uh, this uh, uh, candidacy has been frozen, blocked, but is still going through sort of uh, bureaucratic sleepwalking or zombie uh, here. Uh, you know, this is... Uh, this is not a partner of, of the European Union anymore. This is a country that also has uh, uh, 
dramatically uh, backslided on on democracy and, and the rule of law. Um, you know, it's one of the uh, few countries actually that have denounced the deal. Yeah, it's 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 interesting. Recently, it's Turkey and Iran have denounced the deal between Israel and the UAE and, and Bahrain when Turkey has officially relations with Israel. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, I, I think it's it's really time that. Uh, we maybe re, uh, reevaluate the kind of relationship we want to have with this neighbor. Yeah, definitely. Um, and um, Ben, I want to I want to uh, transition here to, to something that um, I want to revolve revolve more around kind of the defense and security aspect of the transatlantic uh, relationship. And I, I I was really glad and I really liked um, how you put it earlier on, where you, when you spoke of a, a tough love. And I, I really wish that everyone across every European capital was. Um, you know, uh, had the, the sort of the, 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 the prudence to understand Trump's remarks is, is really what they are. Um, uh, it's tough love, right? I mean, it, 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 what I understand from your argument, and this is where I, where I would strongly agree with you, is that it's not even in the EU's interest, in the EU's interest to, um, to free ride on, on American largesse, whether that is on, on NATO spending or other issues, and it really isn't Europeans' zone interest. To um, to um, beef up their their defense spending, right? Get up to their hit the, hit their NATO uh, commitments, etc. But I it, it it also kind of invites another thought here, which is that how it really is an asymmetrical uh, perception on each side of the pond. I mean, if you were to ask European policymakers or the European man on the street what the transatlantic relations relation was about, they would likely say, you know, uh, digital taxation or privacy or or chlorinated chicken. Um, or, you know, if you go further back, uh, 10 or 15 years ago, it would have been the Iraq war. But uh, from the U.S. perspective, they really see it primarily, or at least on the Republican side of the aisle, as we need to get these Europeans to pay up. We need to make these Europeans pay up and, 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 and just pay the money they have committed as, as our NATO allies. And I, I want to delve a, sl- a little deeper here on, on that question, because I know you've, you followed, uh, you were speaking earlier of the troop redeployment, moving uh, these... Um, uh, uh, 10,000 troops out of Germany into Italy, Belgium, Poland, different countries. Uh, I know you, you hosted an event with Prime Minister uh, Morayeki of, of Poland recently. Um, was that move by Trump, and I entirely agree with you that it was carried out recklessly, it wasn't done in any sort of coordinated manner. Uh, Trump was, as always, you know, as, as you know, raucous, and, and the chutzpah was just really unbearable. I mean, it, he really doesn't do things the right way, but uh, was that an opportunity to to kind of revive a European debate over? Hey, listen, we should maybe uh, you know it's not in our, our in our own interest to outsource defense to um, to uh, Uncle Sam. Do, do you do, did you see that as an opportunity? And how how um, how do you think that debate is gonna is gonna go moving forward? Yeah. So you know, before I answer that, let me um, go back a little bit to something you said in your question that I don't think I completely agree with. Uh, you, know, you said if, if you ask Europeans what the transatlantic relationship is about, they'll say uh, digital issues or chlorinated chicken. And then if you ask Americans, they'll say that. Uh, first, I think if you ask the European on the street and if you ask the American on the street what the transatlantic relationship is about, I think they will first talk about values and culture. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I think and, and that matters because, you know, the truth is you talk to Americans about France or Italy, they they love it. They, I mean, you know, like the, the Americans who have been to Paris always uh, have wonderful things to say about it. And for them, it's a very important experience in their life. And obviously, even the most rapidly anti-American Europeans 
will uh, go to McDonald's, watch American TV shows, and generally take their anti-American cues from American pop culture. And, and, and I think that's, that, that's really, that's something that makes me more optimistic about the relationship going forward uh, because I think that a lot of the policy issues that we discuss, that's why uh, sort of pale in comparison to those ties. And so this is when, this is why when I hear Americans say, oh, we're very worried about what we hear uh, from Europe on sovereign Europe or digital sovereignty or strategic autonomy, it means a decoupling from the alliance and it means that Europeans are going to hedge between Russia, China and, and the United States. But that doesn't make any sense to me. I, because we, we will still have those ties that are much deeper than any tie Europeans can have uh, with, with China. Now, of course, if uh, Europeans turn to Huawei for 5G equipment, if uh, Europeans deepen their trade relationship with, with China, you will have other kinds of mm. links and dependencies that will be problematic for the transatlantic alliance and U.S. foreign policy. You know, one thing that struck me, I wrote this uh, in foreign policy, the, um, uh, it, we, we could talk about more, in, in more details about this, but the first global, at least transatlantic event that broke lockdowns in many countries from COVID was the death of George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter mm -hmm. protest. And that resonated in Europe. And, and some of it was anti-Americanism, you know, showing, well, once again, Americans are at it and we're going to... Uh, uh, protest against the racism in American society. Some of it was real solidarity with the movement. Some of it, like in France, sort of resonated with domestic French issues and domestic uh, um, police violence uh, in specific cases like Adama Traoré. Mm -hmm. um, but for me, it's it's interesting. It says something that, yeah. uh, you know, it was not the Uyghurs, it was not Hong Kong, it was something happening in the United States. And that shows the the, the penetration of American culture in our own societies and culture. And, and there's nothing that a Biden or a Trump or any, this is much deeper than mm -hmm. politics. So I just wanna make an aside on this. I don't know, to be honest, I wrote this in the piece, I, I don't know what that means for policy. Um, I've always been sort of a skeptic of the notion of soft power because uh, having TV shows that people watch don't make you, you know, win a war. <laughs> but um, <laughs> but, but, but it, it's still interesting to be noted and I think it should be, um, uh, underlined. Um, now, on the uh, on, on the question of whether U.S. withdrawal from Germany should spur a debate, of course it should. Of course it should. But you know, I, once again, I think that the real thing that should spur a debate about European security is is more. It should not be about the United States. It should be about ourselves. Yeah. It should be about yeah. the fact that we've seen a Russian aggression against the neighbor of. Uh, the European Union in the last few years, as well as cyber attacks uh, and interference in our own democracies. Mm. It should be about um, the fact that we see, uh, you know, uh, Turkey step up in, in Libya, uh, in, mm. in Syria, in the East Med with the security consequences that it has on us. It should be about the fact that conflicts like Syria have had deep consequences for Europe, the rise of ISIS, the migration crisis, uh, and that are, we have not been able, we don't have the capacity to, to shape our environment to have an impact. You know, uh, if you want to look at a crisis that was really existential for Europeans in the last few years, the 2015 migration crisis, you know, there, mm -hmm. there would have been no Salvini, and I would argue Brexit would not have happened without the 2015 migration crisis. 
And that was a foreign policy crisis. That was, mm. that was something that was first spurred on in our environment. And we're completely incapable today, both politically, but also in terms of resources, to have any sort of impact on this. Mm. And, so, and so that these events should really spur us to say, okay, we need to, uh, we need to step up. Definitely. Yeah. Uh, Francois, you, um, there, there's, there's a lot here. There's a lot more ground that we haven't covered uh, yet. I, I wonder if, um, if um, I, I, I may just ask your, uh, Ben, and this is more of a short kind of a rapid fire question. Uh, you mentioned right at the start, um, China obviously is an issue that, you know, a lot of people are wondering kind of what the transatlantic common response to China uh, whether it is on the human rights uh, front or Huawei or any number of issues that really are, that we're not okay as, a, as an alliance with uh, China's behavior. And a lot of people wonder where that common response is going to go, whether Trump stays in office or Biden um, gets in. Um, it seems like the difference may not be all that much, right? I mean, Trump is already, you know, kind of building, a, he's already with great support from, from Congress, uh, kind of building an anti-Huawei mostly with the Anglosphere, but some European countries have warmed up to it. And if Biden wins, you know, there's sort of the argument that he's going to be friendlier or even just in terms of rhetoric, he's going to be, be less confrontational. That's probably also going to help build up, um, you know, a, a united front against, say, Huawei's influence. But I mean, Biden is also less, less um, uh, has, uh, is less tough on China, just objectively. So where do you think, you know, when you look at China, um, what ca what candidate do, do you think would uh, do more to help uh, further a common response to the Chinese threat? On the common response, I think uh, you'll you'll see more effort from Biden. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I think that uh, you know his record is a little mixed. He was a, a supporter, a cautious supporter of engagement with China. He's been a supporter mm -hmm. of China's, uh, accession within the WTO, but he's clearly toughen his stance in recent years. He's called Xi Jinping a thug. Uh, and he yeah. is uh, surrounded by advisors who have had a, a fairly uh, hawkish approach uh, to, uh, to China. And if you read um, articles from some of the advisors you know, in foreign affairs, like Kurt Campbell, Eli Ratner, mm. uh, I think they, they really believe in, in building a, a coalition like-minded states to contain China. Um, now, uh, you know, it, in, in this respect, by the way, um, there's a uh, there's here again a, a European approach to this. If you talk about Huawei and 5G, the United States doesn't have 5G technology. Mm -hmm. The technology is European. Mm. It, it's uh, Nokia and Ericsson. And so there's um, a moment when uh, this, this could be a great opportunity for Europeans to support their own industry, uh, to support their own uh, uh, actors, um, to uh, to defend here European European sovereignty. So this is five G is a really good example where a discourse of European sovereignty is mm. not at all incompatible with the transatlantic alliance because mm. this is not about choosing an American uh, uh, provider or versus a Chinese provider. This is about making sure that our European providers that have the technology are competitive against an actor that doesn't that doesn't respect the same playing field mm. that is supported by states that, uh, you know, so I think in, in, in this respect, that's a, that's a good example of where uh, uh, Europeans can come together, defend their interests. That's something that would be definitely compatible with the Alliance. Definitely. 
So Ben, one last question before we let you go. What do you think is the most important issue in European affairs that is consistently underreported and you wish people paid more attention to? Oh, wow. That's, um, <laughs> that's a really difficult question. How do you flat put it there? Uh, because there's not a lot of uh, underreported uh, uh, issues anymore. Um, but um, I don't know. I mean, you're uh, you're uh, in col, as we would say in uh, yeah, in French. <laughs> in, in French. Um, uh, hmm, that's a good one. Um, I know yeah. you spend a lot of time talking about Eastern Europe, maybe more than uh, than most people. So maybe something there could. Uh, well, I mean, I I, I, don't know, I don't know if it's if it's underreported. Uh, if you talk about you know Central and Eastern Europe, um, one of the things that have been uh, really important to me uh, at the Atlantic Council, we have a really strong program on the region. We've engaged a lot with you know you mentioned we hosted Prime Minister Morawiecki, um, and uh, I think that. The, the region has been uh, looked in a very caricatural way these last few years, es essentially through the prism of uh, the rule of law issue. And oh, you, you, yeah, you mean Central Europe? Central Europe, yes. And, um, and, and I, think the, uh, um, I think there's much more to it than that. I mean, the, the region mm -hmm. worked really well with COVID, actually, uh, better mm -hmm. than Central Europe. Yep. Yeah. Uh, I think there's, uh, you know, the, the truth is the... Uh, when you look at economic growth uh, or, or even the democratic resilience of uh, these societies 30 years after uh, the end of the Cold War and uh, the end of uh, um, the Soviet Union, it's an incredible success story. And so yeah. I wish that we would uh, see this a little more, be, uh, be more positive. I, I still think, you know, for, for France, uh, there's so much more that could be done in terms of uh, engagement all across uh, Europe, and that that means, you know, I'm 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 not going to answer directly your question. What what strikes me is that um, um, I travel across Europe, I go to conferences, and I see German foundations, I see think tanks from uh, the United States, from Germany, from even the rest of uh, of Europe, and and I think we're still too inward looking in our debate. We're we're not present enough. We're not using enough. We have an amazing diplomatic network. And so we'll have embassies, we'll have diplomats that are good, uh, but we are not good enough yet at leveraging foundations, civil society, think tanks, the private sector, also as multiplicators of uh, our, our foreign policy and our influence. And, um, and I think that's because, you know, we have a very state-centric approach, very administrative uh, approach. So we'll have civil servants, ENAC, who are uh, uh, high-quality people, mm. uh, but that, that can't be enough. That's not enough in the world in which we live in. And, uh, and, and you need to be able to have a much more 360 approach to influence and foreign policy. We actually don't really enough understand the levers of, of influence. We do more traditional power, uh, but, but not influence. And I think that's um, something, if you want to ask me in, in, in France, uh, it's not something, an issue that, you know, on the U.S. side, we're not talking enough about in Europe. But... But in France, if we, if we talk about our foreign policy, uh, we, um, we could be more creative in, the, in this respect. I still often read op-eds about, you know, whether the, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs is, is funded enough, not funded enough. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that's still such a, 
it's a very archaic debate. I mean, yeah. of course, we could increase the resources for, for our defense and foreign policy, but I think we could also think about how we include different kinds of actors in this. And, and, and I say this, you know, speaking from Washington, D.C., uh, in, 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 in a city where you have such an incredible dynamism of, uh, of think tanks, of NGOs, of foundations. And we're not only, you know, if you look at what we do, our job here at, at the, the council, for example, uh, we're not only analysts or observers or scholars, we consider ourselves also actors mm-hmm. of, of international relations. You know, we hosted a, a diplomatic summit for uh, six leaders of the Western Balkans last month mm-hmm. to be on a roadmap for economic integration. Um, and so I think we, we could do more in France to have these actors also think of themselves as actors of foreign policy in French uh, and, and French foreign policy, even if they don't, mm. they don't necessarily have to agree with everything that Macron says. That's not the issue, but they could still be incredibly influential to do this word of uh, work of networking and translation, also of all the issues that we've been talking about today. And it's really interesting because, and, and I guess this will will kind of bring us up to to a close. We're nearing towards the end of the hour, but I thought your last mention here of how you know, there's a lot that Europe has to learn from like the policy formation process as it happens in the United States and maybe the other way around. But yeah, if I understand you correctly, there's that vitality, that dynamism that you see in, in inside the Beltway and in, in your industry and think tanks is, is really something you, you rarely see in, 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 in Europe. And we were uh, just speaking uh, off the record just before we, we jumped in um, uh, for the podcast, we were uh, Ben had uh, uh, hosted a, a conference uh, just yesterday, I believe, which was held in partnership with another think tank that people outside the Beltway wouldn't ever think is a possible ally of the Atlantic Council. That uh, they're called the Charles Koch Institute. They come from a much more pro-restraint kind of anti-war, anti-intervention perspective. But the work that Ben is doing with them and others is is a testament to how you can you know, make stuff happen with people that don't align with you on all the issues uh, on, you know, on the things that you do see eye to eye on. And, and, and so it was a great example. So um, anyway, um, it was, it was absolutely wonderful talking to you, Ben. We really appreciate uh, your time and your thoughts. Okay. Yeah. Thanks a lot, Ben. This was a fantastic first and uh, I hope you know it's the first of a great series of, uh, of interviews. So thanks a lot, Ben. Thank you, Ben. Wonderful. Well, the interview is over and Ben is out now. Uh, Francois, what did you think? Uh, it was a great conversation. Um, ben is a great conversationist. He has always a lot of things to say, so it's great, great yeah. having him on the show. Yeah. Um, one point which is interesting, he wrote a book saying how Europe Europe should not go its own way, but build its own strengths. But at the same time, what's interesting is what, one of the things he points out is um, if you ask um, Europeans and Americans um, what they think of a transatlantic relation, they'll talk about history and culture, first and foremost. Mm. I think that's very true. I think it's interesting that even someone like, like Haddad, who's pushing for a more independent Europe, will make that point. Because yeah. our history is intrinsically linked um, and even nowadays, our cultural landscape, you know, he says one of the first first events which, you know, kind of moved the news away from COVID of the past year was George Floyd's death and all the protests we saw mm. in London and Paris and so on. And because it was an American event and it, 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 the entire European culture followed. Yeah. Um, 
Um, and in many ways, what's interesting is even the, the harshest critics of the US, and I think Haddad pointed this, this, this is that even the harsh, harshest critics, critics of the US and Europe will take their cues from US talk shows, US activists. Mm. So in, in many ways, what's interesting is America is modern Europe's counter, but also modern Europe's counterculture. Mm. Um, we are getting influenced by both sides. Um, and I think that's a point which which is uh, very well um, made by uh, Regis Debray, the French intellectual, mm. who wrote a book about American civilization, which is subtitled How We Became American, How We Europeans and, and French in particular became American. Yeah, and it's really enlightening what um, Haddad said, uh, indeed. And, and um, it's really interesting you mentioned that, that uh, paradox there about, you know, um, a lot of Europe and particularly the left kind of resent, resenting uh, American imperialism in, in, in the area of culture. And now mm-hmm. yeah. it is precisely on, it is precisely through identity politics and these sort of like leftist tendencies that America's having a, this sort of deep and, and wide impact in our, in our own culture. Um, to your earlier point, yeah. I, I, I found that interesting as well. And the, the, the kind of the teachable moment for me from, from uh, this interview was when I, towards the end, I was, you know, I, I came up to, to Ben with, with a question. I said, you know, I kind of, I kind of see the transatlantic conversation as slightly asymmetrical. Right now, what's really top of mind is obviously like, okay, China, the virus, but uh, even just a few few years ago, it would mostly be like technology or, you know, taxation mm. or, or like agriculture or tree. Um, and on the other end, uh, military and defense issues is what I think Americans tend to associate the most with um, transatlantic alliance. But then... Ben, ben had this really good rebuttal, this counterpoint where he said, hold on, um, if you go yeah, back yeah. to basics here, what, what really defines this alliance is, is a set of shared values and a set of shared, um, you know, sort of human principles. But yeah, uh, uh, and, and, you know, I'll just say that it was really refreshing, uh, at least for me to hear someone make the case from a European perspective that the EU should be more strategically autonomous. I would have. I, I think I would have liked um, to hear Ben make more of an of, of an overt point that the EU should um, beef up its defense spending through like the the EU's defense um, uh, fund, the Common Defense Fund, um, even just like the individual uh, spending on NATO of, of all these member countries. I, I wish he had sort of driven that point home. Uh, I don't think that Trump um, is an outlier there, and this is kind. Of, this is the whole argument of Ben's book is that. Every, every prior president to Donald Trump had raised this issue of NATO underspending with EU yeah, leaders. Especially Obama, yeah. Right, right. Um, so I'm really glad, like you said, and I, I think at the start you were really kind of, uh, this, you know, summing up uh, the argument of, of Ben's book really well there. It really um, made me want to read it. Uh, but again, I was just really glad that someone is, is raising these, these issues from a, from a European perspective. Yeah, I think there's one one point which I want to push back a little bit on. on well, we, I, we already asked the question. It was a question of, of is this just a French project? You know, uh, even under the De Gaulle, there was the idea that Europe could be a springboard for French ambitions. Mm. Um, and he pushed back a little bit on it, but it's still true, I think, to a large extent. Um, many, many of countries in Central Europe and Eastern Europe, you know, even the Northern countries, the, Hans- the so-called Hanseatic League, or the, mm. the Free World countries, even Germany, all these countries are a bit uncomfortable with the idea of, of a kind of geopolitical Europe to some extent because they're kind of afraid it just means France is going to be running the show to some extent and they'd be much more comfortable under the American umbrella than under this kind of 
European adventure. Mm. So I think I think, but the other good point he makes is if if France wants to make that case, France is obviously making that case around under Macron. But if France wants to be better, making that case, they need to build networks in, in Eastern and Central Europe, not just for for the diplomatic service, which is excellent in France, but um, it can't be enough. You know, we need to have think tanks. We need to have intellectuals doing the interaction and the rest of it. And I think that's a point he made very clearly is it can't just be the diplomatic services um, of France doing the heavy lifting. Yeah. And I really, I, I really hope that in the, in the near future, we can have someone over for, for an interview that is going to look at all these sort of French specific issues. As you know, when you think of um, the, the, the idea that Ben described of um, strategic sovereignty or European sovereignty, that's really a yeah. Macron theme that he's been driving at these council meetings. And I, I really hope that we can, um, you know, when, when COVID ends and when we can get to meet uh, physically again, we can have someone over with more yeah. French perspective on what, what it really means and what Macron is trying to achieve there with, with that notion. Um, but without further ado, um, I, I think, as you were saying at the start, this was a great first, um, really glad we, we were able to get Ben on, um, as we were saying at the very start, he really kind of, um, yeah. encapsulates the kind of lens that we we try to bring here with uncommon decency, and and it was just a great way to, to get started. And, and get, um, I, I'm just going to ask our audience here to, to rate and review uncommon decency on Apple Podcasts. That your your comments and particularly your five star ratings are really going to help other folks find out about this podcast. You can also uh, email us uh, your questions or tweet us your questions. Your questions on, on Twitter, our, our handle is UndecencyPod. And if you want to email us a question, uh, a question that'll be UncommonDecencyPod at gmail.com. Um, but thank you so much for listening. See you next week. Uh,